Now, rather than trying to give fluids and food, because that's what most people need to sustain life, they didn't. They didn't bother. They basically, the ones that for TLC were written up for morphine and midazolam, and then they overdosed them. Even if somebody's dying, you still, you don't deprive them because thirst and that feeling of being nil by mouth, that's, that's horrible. And basically, we were not allowed to say anything in terms of response to anything that they'd done because they then brought out a criminal investigation. They decided that they were going to go for five of us, all for manslaughter, and that was it after three years of absolutely destroying my life, destroying my reputation, being bullied, being harassed by public as well. Um, I had been spat up in the street and called a murderer. And it, this was all the way the government spun it. Hello, everyone. That was the voice of Sandra Lewis, formerly a manager at Abbotsford Nursing Home on the Isle of Man. In this interview, Zandra gives her account of what happened when the island's government took direct control of the home during the early part of the COVID era. Whilst this situation is, as far as I'm aware, unique in the British Isles, it gives insight into practices that were common across Britain and the wider world. Practices like the aggressive use of end-of-life pathways, the denial of food and water and the use of respiratory suppressant drugs such as midazolam, Zandra also describes how the government controlled the narrative of what went on, blaming her and her colleagues for the extraordinary levels of deaths and preventing her from speaking out through gagging orders. To give some context, I start out by asking Zandra to describe her educational and professional background. I'm formerly known as Zandra Lewis, which was my professional name, uh, which I kept throughout. Um, I'm now known as Sandra Preston, which is my married name because I'm obviously not in a career position anymore. So uh, when uh, prior to COVID um, and going way back, I obviously became a registered nurse in 1985 and have had various different NHS posts. Um, worked in an ITU, worked um, in uh, care of the elderly, did uh, a little bit in um, uh, high-end surgery, which is not quite ITU, but is the next step down. Um, then my mother has been always into private hospitals and so uh, I worked for her for a while, which was with, um, worked very closely with Stoke Mandible and it was with uh, spinal patients mainly. And then she built another area, which was for surgical patients on the top. Um, she decided to move into nursing homes um, and she was building a, a home that, had 30 beds, but she, it was a residential home, but she was making it into a nursing home. Um, so it went from 30 to 60 beds. And she asked me to come and uh, help her develop the staff because they were quite 
um, old fashioned in their ideas. They had no knowledge of how to do a care plan and how to, you know, when sort of more in the days when more paperwork was needed. So I basically turned a 30 bedded into a 60 bedded nursing home, trained all the staff up. Um, then I moved over to the Isle of Man. Um, and initially I worked as a ward sister in Newlands, uh, which was um, predominantly for rehab of the elderly. Um, I got a post virtually straight away, which was quite nice. I enjoyed that until then my mother decided they'd moved over here and they decided that uh, my mother was supposed to be going into retirement and she needed a project. So hence Abbotswood was born because she was great at building, seeing things because she was a nurse. So she built Abbotswood and that opened in December 1994. And she asked me to come and work for her. Initially, I wasn't going to uh, because I had a nice position at Newlands, but then they decided to cancel all my courses and things because they thought that I was going to go. So they did all that and I thought I'm not working for an organisation like this. So it was still like that back then. Um, and then Abbotswood was born basically. And it was a 60 bedded nursing home. Um, well, initially it was 40 beds and then we put an extension on in 1999. Uh, and that was an EMI extension, which is elderly, mentally infirm. Um, also throughout that, um, Career-wise, educational-wise, I did a degree in health studies, a BSc honours degree. Um, I then went on to do, I was one of the first on the island to do nurse prescribing, which was uh, another degree, um, which was probably the hardest thing I've done. Um, I also uh, got my PC um, postgraduate certificate in education um, so that I could teach because um, I, I love the teaching part of things and also for student nurses that were coming into the nursing home. And I also um, went on to do my A1 and V1, which is an assessor's award for city and guilds. So that again, we could train our own staff up to do all the things that were actually coming on board at that time. So that was throughout the sort of whole, of, as well as lots of other different areas um so that's basically the, the 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 progression of me over the um the 30 years i was basically at abbotswood until 2020 when um my job there had changed initially i was a nurse on the floor you know working five days a week, 13 hour shifts, because when you start a new business, that's what you have to do until you build up your staff and your clientele and everything. Um, and then I started uh, learning the business side of things as well. Um, Cause my mother used to be the administrator of the whole business. Um, and then I kind of moved over into what I call the easy pile of administration um, and then grew from there until then my job role changed. Um, I was always the registered manager there 
uh, up until my health started to deteriorate uh, massively when uh, in 2012 I had my second heart attack and so I used to get tired a lot easier um, and then I had to kind of step back and take a more administrative role but I was always there for the residents I was always like the old-fashioned matrons in a way going around checking everybody I'd hear report I'd, I'd find out if somebody was ill I would go straight to those people check them if they needed anything again you know at weekends I used to pop in at weekends I used to go and uh, because I was a prescriber I was able to prescribe medicines for people over the weekend so that it didn't mean they had to wait for a Monday for a doctor so we had a very very close-knit kind of family there everybody knew their jobs and everybody sort of knew who to go to for specialities um one of my nurses was really good with wounds and wound care so you know you'd go to her if you wanted advice and sort of say what, what you? so it, it was very much a teamwork um i suppose with me at the helm and then uh 18 months before covid alas i had another heart attack and um that took me basically off the floor um, and I would only go back onto the floor if I still look at my residence every day and go around but it took me off the floor and I mainly then did admin um, and although I was still a nurse I was doing you know, the running of the business basically making the decisions upgrading things so I then became what they call the responsible person and I brought in two other managers who weren't nurses but they were very good at what they did um, and so they started to manage the home and then as a responsible person I only actually needed to go in according to the rules and regulations twice a year to do an inspection but I was there every day because it was my business it was my home um, it was my reputation and at the time before Covid Abbotsford had had an excellent reputation so coming on to the COVID period then, can you give your recollections of how that unfolded from really when you heard about this potential virus to the stepping up of the regulations to then what followed with the government becoming directly involved in that sort? Um obviously back in the November we'd heard rumblings, you know, from China. Um and everything and you know, anybody that reads the news or reads the wider sort of thing thought mm. we'd already had a contingency plan um which i'd had for quite a while um prior to covid i'd had it really because if the boats don't sail you know you don't get the equipment to look after the uh the residents and um so it was for, for things like that for um for disruption um and it was also when the first SARS came out we all had to do contingency plans to what we would do if there was either a flood an earthquake a pandemic so we all actually had I think I presume most of the nursing homes had their own contingency plans for exactly this situation so from the December I started to plan um, 
And I started to bring in um, stuff from the UK uh, by any means I could, either by Amazon, by um, other suppliers, and started to stockpile things like, you know, just washcloths, aprons, gloves, um, universal precautions, which is what you need to look after residents, because no matter what they've got, whether it's diarrhea or vomiting, or whether they've got um, hepatitis A, C, or they've got um, a cold, flu, um, you still need to use your universal precautions on all your residents. So I'd started to stockpile um, hand soap um, because, again, everybody was trying to get hold of sanitizer, but at the end of the day, washing your hands is the most effective, and it always has been. Um, so as long as you wash your hands between patients and you do it well, um, and then you put new gloves on and a new apron on, then that is the proper way of doing things. So, and we've always done it. And we've, we did have a certain degree of masks, which um, some of my staff used to wear them prior to COVID hitting. Um, and I used to say, what are you wearing that for? And they'd say, because they'd wear it all day. And I say, what are you wearing that for? They only last 20 minutes. And, the, you know, so why are you even bothering to, to wear it? It's not going to protect you um, only if you're going into a room and coming out. Um, so I, I try to do all this. Um, I also put a sink in the main entrance. So everybody had to wash their hands before they even came in the door. It was like a little um, you know, vestibule. So we put a sink in that. Um, we basically did cancel all annual leave um, when it started to get, you know, a little bit hairy. That was before they actually closed the borders. Um, so we already had, we had two containers full of stuff. Um, also uh, food as well. I closed down a bathroom and we put food in there, dried foods, so that you could make... Um, so if there were, you know, you, you could make eggs and things like that and, and you could still feed the residents with nutritional stuff um, just in case you couldn't get it fresh because you just, we just didn't know. So we had three months supply of food. We had three months supply of basically what I call disposable items, pads, everything, you know, as I said, three months of everything. Um, and... We had it all locked up in containers, just in case. I'd done all that. I was finding hand sanitizers difficult to get. Um, nobody would supply them with me. And then when things started to get, when you saw all the media hype and everything that was going on in the UK, um, we got that, you know, a, a good month before the Isle of Man sort of cottoned on. Uh, and it, it was the fact that most nurses, as well as nursing homes, were actually given the hazmat suits. And um, I tried to get hold of some of those and there was none available. So, again, um, certain staff were wearing aprons and putting bin liners over the top of their uniforms as well and using that as a way to stop the virus. <laughs> I'd be like, what are you doing? 
Um, but anyway, uh, so we actually closed our home to visitors and to, because although the government said there was nothing on the Isle of Man, we knew there was. It was obvious that there was, um, that it didn't just happen on one day. And then, you know, the first case or whatever, that's the first known case. So we, we had two weeks prior closed the home to visitors. Um, that was on the Mothering Sunday, which was the mar in the March. Um, and I said, no, I'm not, I don't want any flowers, any whatever. I don't want people bringing stuff in. At the time, there was a lot of scaremongering about even post, you know, could be holding the virus. So, you know, everything was kept in the vestibule 24 hours before it was even picked up. Um, so I thought, anyway, uh, I don't know. Uh, when the borders, when they announced the borders were closing, um, that the first case came on, um, I was told by my GP to... Um, what do you call it, to uh, look at all my staff records and to seek out anybody that was what they called classed as high risk and to do a risk assessment to take the appropriate precautions. Now, some of my staff, one of my staff in particular, she had uh, cystic fibrosis. So that was a, you go straight home, you know, you can't be in here. Um, you're too much at risk. I, there was... There was about 10 staff out of the 99 that I employed that needed to either be at home or to go and try and protect themselves against the virus. And that included myself. And I was gutted because the, the, the doctor said to me, you can't go in, Zandra. If you catch this in its rawest form, you, you will probably be the ones that die of it. Um, so I was like, okay. So I got a remote computer got somebody to get me a remote computer and on the was it the 20th of march i believe they closed the borders um which was a friday uh, or they said that the first case had come um that's when i sent the people home from work and that they ranged from kitchen assistants to trained nurses um and i took everything home basically to work from home so that i could still support them with everything that was coming in, I could look at all the emails, I could look at everything. Then I would ring and say, I'm sending this to your private email or I'm sending this on so that you have the most up-to-date information. We had a couple of residents between that time that I don't know if it was COVID um, or not, but they did have some symptoms because they had high temperature. But then when you tested their urine, it had blood in it and protein and you thought, well, is this uh, uh, a urine infection? Uh, I had another gentleman that was sent to hospital whose pacemaker didn't seem to be working because he was only showing 35 beats a minute rather than uh, the 55 to 60 that they usually set them at. Um, and he was struggling. So we sent him to hospital and they accepted him. And I had another lady that had um, an acute bout of heart failure and she's normally stable. So again, she was sent to hospital. Um, and to be told, seven days later, 
that they had COVID. Now, where they caught it from, don't know. Whether it was from us or whether it was actually from the hospital. Uh, they tried to send them back and I said, no. Um, we had taken a couple of admissions from hospital and I had asked them to be tested. And that was in the week um, before they closed the border. So that week, you know, the sort of, I think it was 13th to the 20th or whatever. I had taken two patients from hospital. I had asked them to be tested and they said, no, there was no clinical reason to do so. And I said, well, I'm not taking them then. And then they said, um, well, you know, I, the consultants were ringing me up and screaming at me down the phone saying, you know, you, you've got to take these patients, there's nothing wrong with them. And I'm like, yeah, but just to doubly make sure, can you please test them? Um, and they still refused. So stupidly or not stupidly, I don't know. Um, I took those two patients um, and then after the 20th said no more. Um, I kept five because we were doing a refurbishment program at the same time. Um, so I had kept five beds empty prior to COVID and that was for refurbishment because we, we were in sets of five. Um, and so it meant that I could refurbish five rooms, move other residents into those rooms, refurbish another five and so on. Well, that was all put on hold, unfortunately, obviously due to COVID. So we decided to turn it into a little COVID wing in case. Um, but alas, a couple of my residents that we moved out of there were wanderers. So to contain it, when you've got people that go into other people's rooms, use their toilets and go into other people's rooms and lie on their beds and, um, you know, do stuff like that. You, 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 and you can't lock them in the rooms. You're not allowed to, you know, that's against every human right. And that was mentioned at one point that I should lock them in their room. And I'm like, oh, no, I can't do that. Um, so anyway, COVID actually first hit the home on the 5th of April. That was our first confirmed case. And we had to plead with uh, the government to come in and test this lady. Because again, she was a wanderer and she was gonna spread it. Where she got it from, I don't know. She could have got, because we also stopped any bank staff coming from other places, because you know that, that can cause problems. So I don't know how it got in, the only person that could probably tell me that is Rachel Glover. But I doubt whether she would tell me because she had all the sequencing, didn't she? I don't know if she could or couldn't. Um, so that's how it got in. I'm just going to take a cup of tea break. <laughs> um... From there, it went from bad to worse, um, purely because uh, 111 was, it was disorganised chaos. It depended who you spoke to. Um, 111, you'd ring them up or a staff member would ring them up and say, I've got symptoms or whatever. They'd send them straight home. They wouldn't test them. I had 
which I've submitted already, uh, a, a list of people that were never tested in the beginning, that they just sent them home willy-nilly. So, of course, I lost 50% of my staff virtually straight away. Um, if you'd been in the same car as them, as somebody that had been positive, even if the windows had been open or whatever, um, they were then sent home. They weren't even tested. They were just told to go home. And I'm like, but you can't do this. You know, by then we had quite a few patients with COVID and we were keeping staff that were just looking after COVID patients and staff that were not um, separate. However, it got to the stage where we didn't have enough staff. So I think Abbott's was down for one of it was I went on Manx Radio to ask for help because I was not getting any from the government. And it was the Monday before. Yeah, it was the Monday before Easter. And I just said, if there's anybody out there that can supply me with good PPE, as in I was talking about not normal PPE, I was talking about hazmat suits. And but I didn't stipulate that. And um, and if there was any staff out there that wanted to come and say, just feed residents for me or uh, because then the nursing staff could go in, do the turns, do the check the residents, you know, even if you only had four people, you could have two sets going and just constantly doing it if somebody else was giving them fluids and food. And that is the main thing with anything that these people got fluids. I had also, um, we used to do subcut fluids, which there is some discrepancy about how effective subcut fluids are, but we used to use them when people had gone off um, and were not very well. Um, we used to use them for 24 to 48 hours and it often gave them a lift so that they could then get back to drinking themselves. Um, so I'd ordered 36 one litre bags of normal saline and they could have used those at any time and they chose not to. Um, so that's what I was asking for. I was asking for help um, with anybody that wanted to help us clean, anybody that wanted to help the residents in any way. Um, and the government, of course, and I also said, stupidly, when I think back, that I would blame the government if any of my residents died or my staff died. And I think that was the thing that they decided that they were going to go for me. Um, and after that, I got a lot of people ringing me up from government, different departments, um, giving me lots of platitudes and lots of pats on the back, but no actual help, no real help. Um, by the Friday of Easter Friday, things were getting to a crisis point. Um, there was still staff there. Um, it wasn't quite like Spain, um, but the staff, were, there was still staff there, but they were limited. I had only two members of staff on the EMI unit, and that was for 17 patients. And I had seven staff on the main unit, which was for... 40, uh, yeah, 40 patients at the time because I had the five empty beds. 
So, um, and although they were still being looked after, um, they were still, you know, it, 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 you then had to do, you had to change your way of nursing back to the old fashioned way of um, task orientation rather than individual patient care because you just had to do it that way. It was like a fluid round, food round, <laughs> comfort round, you know, you, you would just change the way that you did things. Um, staff were managing, but they were getting obviously very tired. And then as more staff were being sent home by 111, um, I wouldn't mind, but they were just sending them home. And it was like, we were taking people's temperatures in the morning. And if they didn't have a temperature, they might have got a temperature by the evening, but it was already rife through the home. So it was like, if people felt okay, um, they, they, you know, I was saying, well, I was going against 111 at one point saying, well, if you're okay and you haven't got a temperature, why aren't you working? Um, anyway, uh, the crunch came on the Friday when the inspectorate, I said to the inspectorate, uh, it's getting to dangerous levels of staffing. I need help. Um, and they were like, oh, we've popped down to the nursing home already. And it seems that you're okay. Like, but what happens over Easter weekend if suddenly another five go off? You know, we can't run it like this. We we need some help. And then it was like, there's no help coming, no staff. Um, they were already short at the hospital. Everybody was going off sick at the hospital. Um, they didn't have any staff anywhere. So it was like, okay. They Then um, I had to give a twice daily update to the CEO, Catherine Magnuson, who so abusive and rude and a megalomaniac is the only way I can describe her. I've never known a person that is so full of their own self-importance um, that had no clue about what we were up against. She had no clue about island life. She had no clue about anything, to be perfectly honest. She was making decisions that, in my opinion, were dangerous um, to the point where I actually phoned up uh, a lawyer at the weekend and said, can you help me with this? Because she's saying this and he said she basically wanted to move. Uh, she asked me how many residents didn't have it at the time. And I said uh, 10, not on the EMI side, because nobody at that point had it on the EMI side. But on the general side, I said, we've got 10 that haven't got it. She wanted to move those 10 to other nursing homes. And I said, you're having a laugh, aren't you? And she said, what, what do you mean? And I said, well, you're going to infect other nursing homes because if this doesn't come out for another five days and they've got the virus and they're just harboring it at the moment, you're then going to infect every other home on the island. She told me to be quiet and uh, to get six of these residents ready for, remove, for removal. So, and not to tell anybody or the relatives. And I said, I can't do that. I have to tell, I said, I don't have to tell the patients, 
I said, at, at this precise moment, I said, but I have to inform my nursing staff because they have to get things ready, like discharge papers and drugs. And you can't just send somebody somewhere else with, with nothing. Um, so uh, I said to her that she had to, um, that, yeah, I had to tell, and I had to tell the relatives. Um, she screamed at me because we had several meetings a day. She screamed at me once and said, I don't know what the hell you're doing at home. You should be in there with your staff. And I said, I've been told that I'm high because I was also on methotrexate. So I'm immune suppressed. Um, and I was told that I couldn't go in. I mean, I was, I was clutching, you know, I really wanted to be there with them. Um, and, um, she told me, well, other people that I know that have got the same kind of things of you have gone in. And I said, do you realize how poorly I am? And, and she was like, I don't care. You should be in there. Um, she also told me that, um, she'd had concerns for a while over my management style because I told the staff to get the patients ready, but not tell them until you know the last minute because I didn't want them overnight worrying or whatever then I went to my lawyer and said look what she's doing is mad she's going to infect the whole of the homes um and I basically wrote down verbatim what he told me to say to her so that I could then come back the next meeting that we had um and say I've spoken to a lawyer and he's saying you know that this is totally unwarranted um, um you know it was basically along the same lines that i'd said but um it was more in legal terms so she kind of backed off with that um and then decided just to move to um and then she backed off with that um so that's what i mean everything was it was like is this woman mad um she would then be asking for, for, for things that you couldn't give. I want um, a week of rotors. Well, I don't know who's going to be there tomorrow. You know, I want a week of um, who's going to be on call, um, which I said, well, I'm on call, but I can't go there. I can just give advice over the phone um, or, you know, if, if they want to FaceTime me, if a resident's ill, they can do that. Um, she wanted to know uh, so many things that we couldn't actually provide. And then they kept slamming us for the fact that we couldn't provide it. Because I said, look, my staff are busy looking after residents. That is our main concern, is to actually take care of them and to give them fluids. And then on the Monday, the bank holiday Monday, the GPs were all called up to the car park. All three GPs from Ballasala Surgery were called up to the car park and they, I was with them and I got told to leave. And um, my sister, who was the, uh, was the manager, was inside and she um, came out to find that they'd revoked our license. And they, they then all walked in, the GPs included, a geriatrician and another GP. 
and they went round and they looked at every single resident and they found two things. They found one gentleman who was um, complaining because he hadn't got out of bed in two days. Come on. You know, when you know, he had fed, watered and he was comfortable. Um, and they found somebody else uh, with uh, a pressure sore who had already had that pressure sore and she was already on an air mattress and being turned. So they basically didn't find anything. But um, they then went round and they put all of them apart from two patients on what I call TLC, tender loving care, uh, which basically means uh, Liverpool Cardiac Care Pathway to them. It didn't to us because TLC is you still give somebody fluids and food until they really can't take it anymore. Um, even if somebody's dying, you still, you don't deprive them because, they, you know, thirst and that feeling of being nil by mouth, that's, that's horrible. So um, they basically went around and did that, put everybody on TLC. They wrote a lot of people up for midazolam and for diamorphine and started giving it to some of the patients. Now, rather than trying to give fluids and, you know, food, because um, that's what most people need to sustain life, they didn't, they didn't bother. They basically, the ones that for TLC were written up for morphine and midazolam, and then they overdosed them as well. So uh, my staff at that point were still there dealing with the managers that had walked in to take over, who were nurses, um, but they were nine to five nurses. <laughs> uh, they went at five o'clock, not the license had been revoked so they basically took over and were in charge and yet there was nobody on call there was nobody there after you know as in a managerial position after five o'clock um as i said they uh the nurses uh, they found nurses from somewhere i don't know where but they certainly weren't particularly uh when i say good nurses that's not necessarily the case they were nurses that had not got a clue about how to look after care of the elderly they just didn't have a clue um and i don't know where they found them from my staff were ringing me up um in tears i had relatives ring me up saying do you know what's going on with my loved one um and I, I then had to get hold of somebody at work and then uh, was kind of using a private network because I couldn't get any information. Um, the staff were actually there illegally because as soon as they bring the license, um, I didn't realize, but the staff shouldn't have stayed because <laughs> and they tried to get them to stay by signing a contract. And my staff said, we're not working for you lot. Um, then they were getting Newlands ready, which is 
used to be where I used to work a long, long time ago. So we're turning that back into bays of six so that they could take the residents that were COVID positive there, which is what they did. They were taking them six, six at a time. So they took them there, but they also took some of our equipment with them. So the place wasn't fit for purpose unless they stole because they didn't ask which so that is the stealing they stole our air beds um and took them with them um because they didn't have enough uh of their own so therefore it wasn't fit for purpose um so you know some of the residents did survive um but a lot of them who were probably the frailer ones would just leave them you know um i went one of my relatives said who had her parents both of her parents there said to me can you go and check on my mum or can somebody go and check on my mum so i sent one of the girls that i trusted from the emi just to go and have a look at her and see how she was and she said sandra she said she was reaching out for a drink and she just got a whole beaker full and just drank it in front of me. And I said, did you give her another one? And she said, yes, I did. And I said, okay. I said, uh, she needs a drip. So I then phoned up um, the relative and said, you need to ask them to do a subcut drip. And they said no. Um, initially, they did do it in the end after another two days. By that time, it was probably too late and she died. So 20 of my residents actually died and none of them died on my watch or our watch, should I say, Abbotswood's watch. They all died on the DHS watch. Just to clarify that point, during the COVID period, up until the point the DHSS took over, mm -hmm. no residents had died. Uh, one had died of, um, she was already palliative care. She'd come back to us from hospital mm -hmm. with palliative care. Um, she died. I, I believe they put COVID on her death certificate as well, but I, she wasn't, she wouldn't have died of COVID. Um, and everybody else, no. Okay. So in the period from the other man government's Department of Health and Social Care taking over direct control of Rampers Ward, what are we talking in terms of a time period then as to a couple of them died the next day on the like the 14th or the 15th and then the majority of them died after afterwards during their during their stint a period in, in the following fortnight or yeah. month yeah yeah fortnight to uh i think it was three weeks because they they moved out and what was awful is that the last patient they moved out of Abbotswood, um, my staff weren't there anymore, but they were at the, um, you know, waving them goodbye at, at the entrance to the building. Um, they were told to stop it because they were intimidating the staff, which they were saying, no, we're, we're here for the residents, we're not here for you. Um, and they went down to, to like wave them off. And then a couple of my staff said, uh, one of the residents, she was the last to be moved, and uh, 
she was end of life by that stage and they said please just let her be and die here at Abbotswood and they said no and they put her in an ambulance she died in the ambulance I mean this is what you're talking about this is the the caliber of people um they just didn't have a clue I know you really alluded to it or we all said this but I'm just re-asking because the information is so shocking essentially what you're saying is that when Department of Health and Social Work came in people were put on what we might call end-of-life pathways whatever the yeah. current term is which means they're denied food and water and they're put on drugs like morphine and midazolam yeah. which are respiratory suppressant drugs and yeah. they're used in end-of-life so yeah. irrespective of COVID or no COVID at that point, whether they had a virus or not, um, they were going to die from the end of life pathways. Yeah. And therefore it's accurate to say the Department of Health and Social Care, regarded by government, killed a number of people at Abbotswood, yes. up to 20 people. Yeah. And when we, our lawyers, sent a thing into the police to investigate it, we were told there was nothing to answer to. And that's because the coroner's office had already investigated and concluded the deaths were due to COVID. I presume so. All the death certificates all said COVID or whatever. I don't know. I don't know because I wasn't there. I don't know what was going on, what what they did and how they covered it up. And But they made us out to be, you know, uh, they made out the Abbotswood was to blame and it wasn't i mean yes we might have lost 10 15 we might have lost all 20 i don't know but we certainly would have tried and we certainly would have um not just left them in their in their beds you know that, that's just they were our family you know they they were everything to us and to all my staff. My staff are highly traumatised still about it. Some of my staff are, including myself. But, um, yeah. In the period immediately after this then, you're involved in legal action or a criminal investigation is yeah. brought against you. And that's dropped but results in a gagging order that stops you from talking about this for a prolonged period. Yeah. Can you explain that chapter, please? Uh, from the gagging order first came in from um, Catherine Magson, who said that um, I wasn't allowed to speak to any of the press or any of the whatever about what anything was going on. Um, that if we spoke to the press or spoke to anybody about their actions that it would have even more repercussions and um, they carried on hounding us they they went in after the last patient was removed and well they were there rather before the last patient was removed should I say um they'd left drugs out controlled drugs out um I know I'm going off the subject of the question but um, I just want to reiterate this, that they'd left controlled drugs out. Um, 
but they, they didn't go by their own code of practice at all. Um, they'd put people's belongings in bags and hadn't even marked up who belonged to who. And they it was just an absolute nightmare. They chucked out a whole load of wooden furniture because we had wood, wood furniture saying that it wasn't fit for purpose. Um, they went through the home while they were there and went back two years on everything. <laughs> two years on all the paperwork of every single resident, every single uh, person that had either died, that had had a health and safety form uh, fall or, or whatever. They went back and they literally, I think, and this is from my perspective, and I'm sure that a lot of people think the same thing, because they went back two years on everything, they were looking to find something. Because initially they said the place was being closed because it was unfit for purpose because of fire eggs. It wasn't. We were like, well, where's the, the form that says, <laughs> you know, and they could, they never produced it. Then they said it was unfit for purpose uh, electrically, but that's them that they pulled the wires out and we have photographs to prove that. Um, they, they made up all sorts. And basically we were not allowed to say anything in terms of response to anything that they'd done because they then brought out a criminal investigation on, how many of us were there? Five, on five of us. Um, I was reported to the NMC for an unrelated incident that had happened back in the April, which I, it was total mitigating circumstances. And, um, it was just to, I think they did it to like besmirch my reputation. Um, because it was another thing, cause it was reported in the paper that it was COVID related, which it wasn't. Um, they then um, said that there was an ongoing investigation. And while there was an ongoing investigation, we shouldn't say anything to anybody. Um, our lawyers got involved and obviously said at this point, you know, don't say anything because um, we need to see where this is going. Then they decided that they were going to go for five of us, all for manslaughter, manslaughter, gross negligence, neglect, health and safety, and ill treatment. That's what we were smashed with in the October. And we were like, what? <laughs> Where have these charges come from? What are you? Um, we had, a, I, I, some of them were in the police cells for a long time. Um, I was questioned on three different occasions, both all for eight hours each. Um, no comment interviews because, but what I was hearing, I, I just couldn't believe that then caused me to have a mental breakdown. Um, and I just, I, I couldn't live with the thought that people would even think that I'd done something like that. So I, I tried to take my own life by walking into the sea. Um, and then a couple of weeks later, I tried an overdose. 
um, because the sea hadn't worked. Um, somebody got me out of it, out of it. So, uh, yeah, the police came and seized my phone when I was in uh, in the police cell because they said obviously it had something on it. Well, I had nothing on it apart from you know some WhatsApp messages between myself and you know when they're saying we don't know what to do about such and such and then I would message them back and say this is what I would do you know um it was a horrendous time by the February of that year they said they still hadn't charged us we were just on bail um arrested but not charged um so that was a year then they sent it across for police to look at across and they were obviously told it's ridiculous so they then knew that by the april but didn't bother releasing us from the charges until the june so we were released from the charges of all that horrible manslaughter and everything. Um, and there was a little snippet in the paper. I, I think it said, um, not enough evidence rather than nothing to answer to. Not enough evidence, which is just how things are spun, isn't it? Um, and um, then, but health and safety are doing a criminal investigation and I'm like so you know it's not the end of it so everything was dropped against everybody apart from me and health and safety were coming after me um so everybody else could breathe again apart from me um and um so that was in the June they said that and I heard nothing from health and safety for another year where they said it's going to be forthcoming and whatever and I'm like going to my lawyer saying is things how is it progressing whatever um and eventually this year so it's three years on from when it started this year in uh February I signed uh, a simple caution which is different it's not a criminal caution a simple caution for um for the fact that i had left the building but that was not covid related it was because my mother was on the floor and i'd left the building for that, that two hours that was prior to covid and i thought well i did do so whether it's mitigating circumstances or not because um, my mother had breast cancer at the time and was not well and she was falling a lot and uh, she'd fallen on the floor and it needed two of you to get her up and so I left the building with um, EU registered nurses but they weren't registered with the NMC but they were still brilliant nurses um, in charge for a couple of hours so um so I took a simple caution for that 
And I also took a simple caution for not filling out a rider form. <laughs> and that was it after three years of absolutely destroying my life, destroying my reputation, being bullied, being harassed by public as well. Um, I had been spat up in the street and called a murderer. And it, this was all the way the government spun it. And when did the gagging order expire that allowed you to essentially sit here today? Um, it's, uh, it's because I've taken the cautions. It's over. Okay, up until that point, so up until this year, you were still gagged. Mm -hmm. I mean, now I can tell my story. Um, and I haven't gone to the press because with all the things that are going on with Rachel Ransom, uh, or Dr. Ra Rose, Rosalind Ransom, sorry, with all the things that are going on with her, our case kind of runs parallel to that. Um, so I haven't really gone to the press to spill the beans because I, it, it's not the right time. I'm waiting for the COVID inquiry to see what comes back from that. And then um, I don't know how I'm going to put it out there. I mean, you're going to put it out there, obviously, but um, I don't know how I'm going to, because I don't think they realise what they've done and how easily they can destroy somebody without a second thought. And they haven't learned any lessons from anything. And they're not going to, unless somebody with the strength of character can actually stand up to them. But anybody that has that strength of character is pushed down. I mean, the only person that's helped me a great deal through all of this <laughs> is an XMHK, um, Chris Robertshaw. He knew that something was off from the beginning and he asked to speak to me um, and I did speak to him off the record in the early days and uh, him and Peter Karen, <laughs> um, they, they've always kind of tried to fight my corner for me um, and I think they realise the damage that has been done. Um, both physically and mentally. Uh, the NMC contacted me because I'm still under the NMC investigation, but they contacted me and said that I can voluntarily remove myself. So I've said, yeah, that's probably what I'll do now because I, I can't, I can't go back to practice anymore. I wouldn't want to really, although a couple of weeks ago, well, not a couple of weeks ago, it's a couple of months ago now, um, somebody was very ill on the boat and had a cardiac problem on the boat. And I went and sorted him out and brought him back. And, you know, because <laughs> I'm never not going to go and help somebody because that's an inherent thing of me. But if I can help, I will, because I have a lot of knowledge and I have a lot of um, 
stuff to give. I just don't know how to give it anymore. Does that make sense? It does.